Engel. In football or soccer, there are rules for a ball out of play. That's exactly where we're taking you in this podcast series, Out of Play. Beyond the rules, beyond the pitch, beyond the game. Because every four years during the World Cup, it's more than a simple story of goals scored and athletic displays. Sometimes the really interesting part starts after the final whistle. We've crossed the world to talk with journalists and passionate fans to bring you some of these stories that all have one thing in common, the World Cup. In the stories you'll hear, some of you weren't even born yet. For others, you might remember it like it was yesterday. This series, Out of Play, takes you inside eight of these tales, thanks to the people who actually lived them. You may wonder, why choose an American to help tell you these stories? Well, it's obvious. We're neutral. We're never in the World Cup. So, in 1994, the country of Uncle Sam, the United States of America, hosted the World Cup for the first time. For both FIFA and the host country, the stakes were high. In terms of its image, the U.S. needed to give a good impression. So, America being America, where everything has to be bigger and better, the country went all out. The Fédération Internationale de Football Association, FIFA, wanted to conquer the very lucrative American market. Coast to coast, from New York to Chicago to San Francisco, everything was ready to roll to make the Americans fall in love with a sport that's, frankly, not very popular in the U.S., the sport they call soccer. Even though the U.S. was hosting, it was another team from the same side of the Atlantic that was already a favorite for World Cup fans, Colombia. At the time, the Colombian team had some of the most iconic players ever. Some were total characters, like Carlos Valderrama. What a head of hair. He had even played once in French League One for Montpellier. Alongside Valderrama, there was another legend, Andres Escobar. Escobar was more low-key than the larger-than-life Valderrama, and he also had more class. Because of his chivalrous persona, Escobar was called El Caballero de la Cancha, the Knight of the Field. As a defender, he was respected just as much as he was respectful. Escobar wanted to use the World Cup to boost Colombia's image on the international stage. At the time, Colombia wasn't very well known internationally for its football players. Unfortunately, Colombia was better known for its bad reputation from drug trafficking. And if there was a team captain of drug trafficking, it would be another Escobar who wore the signifying armband. The man known across the world as Pablo Escobar. No actual relation between the two Escobars, just their last name. That said, at the time, drugs were everywhere in Colombia, and they corrupted everything, even football. The drug traffickers, or narcos as they're called, always had a lot of extra money to invest here and there. Starting at the end of the 80s, they poured their drug money into dozens of football clubs across the country. Drug lords helped structure clubs that have trained hundreds of incredible players. 
These drug bosses weren't just major sponsors of Colombian football. They were also huge fans of the sport. It wasn't uncommon to see parties organized on the football pitches behind the estates of drug lords. Some of the country's best footballers played matches with these criminals. One player, Colombia's star goalie, René Higuita, would pay for being a bit too friendly with the narcos. In 1993, Higuita was arrested and sent to prison in a dark case of kidnapping. His friendship with Pablo Escobar did not look good when he went before the judge. Instead of experiencing World Cup 94 as a celebrated player on the field, he followed the championship, disgraced, on TV. The rest of the Colombian team was at the qualification stage. And what a team! They pulverized the world's number two team, Diego Maradona's Argentinians, 5-0. King Pele himself even said Colombia was the number one favorite of World Cup 94. And when skill met luck, all the lights turned green for Colombia. Colombia didn't actually face any real threats in its group, though. The U.S., Romania, Switzerland, these teams weren't that big of a challenge for Andres Escobar and his teammates. The whole country had huge expectations. Colombians, like many South Americans, live and breathe football with a burning passion. It's a religion. There's a love for the national team that surpasses even what we see in Europe. When Colombia plays, the country stops. Bosses give their employees the afternoon off without hesitation. Bogota streets, which are normally jammed, become almost empty. And Colombians repaint the bars yellow, the color of the national team. But to be favored and carry the hopes of an entire country is a heavy burden for one team. The pressure mounts. And the opponent usually plays like he has nothing to lose. And that's exactly what happened in the first match of World Cup 94. Colombia versus Romania. An easy team for Colombia. But on the pitch, the Colombians were stressed. Nothing worked like it should. Failed passes, missed shots, playing without conviction. You could see the frustration in the eyes of the players. For Romania, it was the opposite. Led by the incredible Georges Hagi at this World Cup, the Romanians were fast, precise, and united. They smashed Colombia 3-1. The defeat was a big shock. It was traumatizing for the team and for Colombians back home. How the hell could a team of Colombia's caliber lose 3-1 against a team all the way at the bottom of the rankings? After that, Tensions grew even more among the team. But it wasn't just that. Other strange things started to happen that knocked the team off balance. First, according to certain sources, some players received death threats on the TVs in their hotel rooms. They had apparently been arranged by the narcos. Just imagine the astonishment of the players, and even more, their distress to be followed into their hotel rooms in the U.S. like that. Then... Coach Maturana received instructions directly from the narcos. Decisions on strategy, team composition. The drug bosses sent a clear message to the coach. Take out Barabas Gomez or we will kill you, your family and his. Barabas Gomez was a pillar of Maturana's teams. But Maturana wasn't going to risk calling the bluff of whoever sent that message. So 
Barabas was put on the substitute bench for the next match. Barabas announced his retirement from football just after this incident. It got worse. The son of Luis Fernando Herrera, a right defender, was kidnapped in Colombia. Thankfully, he was freed a few hours later. But sadly, not everyone would have the same luck. The brother of Chonto Herrera, another defender on the team, was killed in a very suspicious car accident. The succession of startling, unfortunate events affected the entire Colombian team. Their minds weren't exactly in the game, and they had begun to think more about what would come after. Some didn't even want to play the upcoming matches. But we haven't yet talked about Andres Escobar's attitude. Thanks to his qualities of a natural leader, he persuaded his teammates to stay and to play for their country. However, there were definitely better circumstances to properly prepare for a decisive match. The next match was against the U.S. It was a key moment for the rest of the competition. A defeat here would mean not qualifying for the eighth stage of the final. And this match, this match would become a national shame for all of Colombia. June 22, 1994. Colombia versus the U.S. at the Rose Bowl Stadium in Pasadena, California. Sports bettors set records on both sides of the equator gambling on this match, in the U.S. and in Colombia. The odds were in favor of Colombia. Let's face it, the host country, the U.S., was physically and tactically inferior to the Colombians. From the beginning of the match, Colombia went full force in the game, all the while managing the enormous pressure. They clearly dominated the Americans, and even found their legendary ball strike, the toque. They pushed forward with their attacks toward the U.S. goal, and several times missed scoring the first goal by just a few centimeters. But, as is well known in football, dominating is not winning. And so the timer hit 34 minutes. An American player made a center pass, and Andres Escobar tried to counter within the penalty zone. He strikes the ball, redirecting it. But alas, the ball doesn't go in the right direction. It doesn't go in the right direction at all. Helpless, Andres Escobar sees it heading for his own team's goal. The ball crosses the line, the referee blows the whistle, and the goal is given to the U.S. Andres Escobar, the knight of the field, just scored against his own team. So, 1-0, U.S. At the same moment, thousands of miles from the stadium, Andres Escobar's sister is watching the match with her nine-year-old son. The boy understood exactly what happened. Anguished, he asks his mother, Mama, are they going to kill him? She gave him a reassuring answer. Of course not. We don't kill someone for a mistake. Everyone loves Andres. You can see it on the TV. Andres Escobar is disappointed. He's upset. He knows it. This goal is going to plunge his team into doubt in the face of the Americans who are now supercharged on their own home turf. Besides that, not a single one of his teammates went to comfort him. The players had given up hope. Standing knockout. And the Americans took advantage and continued their aggressive offensive. Riding their momentum, they scored a second goal at minute 52. It was total shock all over Colombia. On the last wisp of hope, Colombia managed to score a symbolic goal at the 89th minute, but unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. At the end of the match, the contrast was striking between the euphoric Americans and the totally downtrodden Colombians. Tears 
rolled down the Colombians' faces. They had lost so much more than round 16. It was all the hopes of an entire nation that had shattered, plunging the country into total turmoil. Colombia, King Pele's favorite, was eliminated. The walk back to the locker room was excruciating. Going back home would be even more painful because now they had to explain themselves to their supporters. Very quickly, Andres Escobar was blamed. Journalists and supporters considered him to be solely responsible for the premature elimination. But Escobar takes the criticism the only way he knows how, with class. Before landing in Colombia, the coach advised all the players to keep a low profile for a while. Because remember, this is Colombia, a country where life is not valued the same as elsewhere. 13,000 people are killed every year in Colombia, a country where the narcos, who had bet big on the victory of Colombia, were majorly upset after this defeat. Andres Escobar needed to talk to his fellow Colombians, to ask for forgiveness and to tell them what was in his heart. His teammates insisted that they all take a few days of vacation together. They chose Las Vegas to forget the World Cup. But Andres Escobar took responsibility for his mistake and gave interviews to apologize to the Colombians. He reminded them that, at the end of the day, it's just football. July 2nd, 1994. Ten days after the most unfortunate goal against his team, Andres Escobar returns home to Medellin. The goal is still in the minds of Colombians, but Andres Escobar would rather look to the future. And the future, for him, is in Italy. At the time, he was getting ready to sign with Milan AC, the best club in the world then. In Medellin, he ran into some old friends, the friends he had started kicking the ball around with when he was a kid. And that evening, he wanted to cut loose. He suggested going for a drink, and why not keep the party going a little longer? The final stage of the World Cup had started, and Andres is with his friends at Al Indio, a local nightclub. He spends the night there having a few drinks and talking with disappointed supporters. He and his friends leave around 3 in the morning. Andres goes to the parking lot and gets in his car. Then, three people call out to him and come over to speak to him. Andres recognizes them. These three guys had cornered him in the nightclub. They started talking, probably still about Andres's unlucky goal. Except this time, the tone gets heated, and then the situation takes another turn. One of the three men takes out a gun and points it at Andres at close range. Six gunshots ring out from the parking lot. Andres is hit all six times. Six bullets fired at one unarmed man. Witnesses said that between shots, the shooter shouted, Goal! While Andres was bleeding out, the three men fled by car. Witnesses made a note of the license plate. It didn't look good for Andres. He was taken to the hospital. Emergency room doctors tried to keep him alive without success. Andres Escobar died 45 minutes after arriving at the hospital. His teammate, René Higuita, the goalkeeper banned from the national team for his links with the Narcos, was the one to identify his body at the morgue. And it was Barabas, the middle, that the cartel had benched during the World Cup, who had the difficult task of telling Andres' family. 
The news made its way around the country very quickly. The entire nation was stunned. And the shock spread to the rest of the world. Never in the history of sports have we seen this. An international player lost his life, most likely because of a mistake during a football match. A line had been crossed. The killer was arrested the same day thanks to his license plate. His name? Humberto Castro Munoz. He was a bodyguard working for one of the biggest cartels in Medellin. International opinion quickly linked the murder to vengeance of unscrupulous gamblers. But in Colombia, everything is always more complicated than it seems. We will never be able to truly say, without a doubt, that the murder of Andres Escobar was vengeance, or if it was just another crime in a city where life is not valued highly. Actually, that same night, 39 other people were killed in Medellin. Was Andres just one more death in a city overrun by violence? The question still remains today. What we do know, however, is that the murderer's employer, the drug boss, Santiago Galon, had lost a lot of money with Colombia's defeat. The shooter, Humberto Castro Munoz, was sentenced to 43 years in prison. But... In 2005, barely 11 years after the murder, he was released for good behavior. Andres Escobar was given a national funeral. More than 120,000 people paid homage to the fallen footballer in the streets of Medellin. Those 120,000 people also marched to denounce the pervasive daily violence that was eating the country. In football, Colombia fell into a black hole and the national team took a long time to climb out again. Andres Escobar remains a legend in his country to this day. Medellin, his hometown, put up a statue of him, a ball at his feet. He's also remembered because of a foundation in his name that helps underprivileged children in Colombia. His style and his elegance will forever remain etched into everyone's memory, just like one of his last speeches. He said, Life doesn't stop here. We have to move forward. Life can't stop here. No matter what happens, we have to rise up. There are only two options. Either we let hate paralyze us and the violence continues, or we move past all of this and we do our best to help one another. It's our choice. Please, let's try to respect each other. Thank you to everyone. It was a special and incredible experience, and we'll see each other again soon, because once again, life does not stop here. Andres Escobar, captain of the national team of Colombia, after his team was eliminated, at the 1994 World Cup. Out of Play is produced by Angle. This episode was written by Alejandro Vargas. Sound production by The in Paris, France. Original score by Roman Pilo and Max Zippel. English version narrated by David Gassman. Find more episodes of Out of Play anywhere you find podcasts and on outofplaypodcast.com.